Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak and Politico's reporting. Today, I'm in conversation with my colleagues, Maya King and Jeremy Siegel, who's host of our great Daily Dispatch podcast, where we talk about some of the racial disparities that have emerged in the COVID-19 outbreak and how the Trump administration and specifically Surgeon General Jerome Adams are responding to questions and concerns. Surgeon General Adams disappeared from the stage for about 10 days before making his reappearance last night. And we discuss what his recent verbal gaffe actually tells us about the conversation around health inequity. Maya King, Dan Diamond, hello. Hi, how's it going? Hello, Jeremy. So, I don't think any of us are going to be doing much interstate travel um, anytime soon, but I want you to imagine this. Um, Tomorrow is the day parts of Georgia's economy are going to be reopening. So um, I want you both to imagine that we are on a road trip together. We're all in the same car. Um, We're driving to Georgia and we're we're going to listen, of course, to to music from a Georgia native. So, Maya, I'm going to let you choose. Um, Are we listening to Ray Charles? Outcast, James Brown, or REM? Oh, we're definitely listening to Outcast. Okay, so we're listening to Outcast. Dan, you get to choose the first stop on our trip. Um, are we going to get tattoos? Are we going to get massages? Are we going to the barbershop to get our hair cut? Or are we going bowling? I think we got to go bowling because if we're going to be reckless and end uh, quarantine, what what better way than to put our hands on shared uh, bowling balls uh, and stick our fingers into the crevices where there might be germs lurking? There, there's no better idea in my mind. <laughs> well, you did say the other week that you were growing a handlebar mustache. So I think on your behalf, I'm, I'm going to say maybe we should consider the barber. <laughs> they might be able to do something about that. So the real reason that we're all together isn't just for our imaginary trip to Georgia. It's also because you both have written about two things recently that come together in interesting ways. Dan, you've written about Surgeon General Jerome Adams and how his role in the Trump administration has shifted over the past week. And Maya, you've written about the you know stark racial disparities that we're seeing and the way the coronavirus pandemic is affecting communities of color, particularly black and Latino people. And Dan, I want to start with you here, because last night we saw Jerome Adams on the stage for the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. This was after he was essentially sidelined earlier this week, you know, not appearing at these briefings. He was also pushed away from some TV appearances lately. What's going on here? Well, Jeremy, that was the question that I wanted to get to the bottom of, too. Surgeon General Adams made more than 10 TV appearances the week starting Sunday, April 5th on shows like Good Morning America and the NBC Today Show, Meet the Press. He was, he was all over the dial. He made just one TV appearance the week starting Sunday, April 12th. And the pivot point was his April 10th press conference at the White House, where standing on stage with President Trump, Tony Fauci, and others, the Surgeon General spent about five minutes talking about racial disparities. But only 15 seconds or so of what he said ended up getting all the attention. And that was when Adams encouraged communities of color not to use alcohol. Avoid alcohol, tobacco, 
and drugs. And call your friends and family, check in on your mother. She wants to hear from you right now. And then finished it off by appealing to people to do it for their abuela or, or big mama. We need you to do this, if not for yourself, then for your abuela. Do it for your granddaddy. Do it for your big mama. Do it for your pop pop. I first was aware of this only the day following on a Saturday when I was out for a walk and saw on Twitter that the hashtag uh, Uncle Tom was trending. And I clicked on it and, and saw the anger against the Surgeon General uh, with progressives accusing him of being a sellout or, or worse for amplifying messages that they said were racist stereotypes. I thought his comments reinforced the notion uh, that personal responsibility is to blame for the racial health disparity um, rather than systemic racism. The Surgeon General got a question about this in the moment at the press briefing. He defended himself. He said he wasn't trying to imply anything about communities of color. Top scientist Tony Fauci stepped in to defend him too. But for the first week or so at least, the damage was done. Now, the Surgeon General did come back, make an appearance on the main stage at the White House on Wednesday night, so it doesn't appear lasting, but it certainly made waves and continues to shape how people think about this administration and the Surgeon General. And I'm curious about the reaction from the two of you. I, I recognize that my lens on this might be a little different. I've covered the Surgeon General. I've talked to him. I've known him for a few years. So Maya, as a reporter who has come at this story from a different angle, I'm curious if you saw the Surgeon General's remarks and if you thought they were offensive. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I did see the Surgeon General's remarks, though, interestingly enough, I saw them through the lens of friends and family who had been watching this and following this very closely, who were very um, confused and also offended to see... Um, a person of color, a black man with such a big platform, um, kind of come out and shame the community. I think that was how people felt, was that they were being shamed. You know, white patients and white folks who have been uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 or who have succumbed to COVID-19 have not received the same directive. And what I think a lot of people, and especially people of color in the advocacy world, want people to understand is that you know, catching the coronavirus is not a cultural, there's no cultural correlation um, to succumbing to this virus. And of course, you know, living healthier is something that would help everyone um, in this situation. But it's not fair to put the onus on African American and Latino folks in the country and say, look, if you're not living correctly, if you're not eating healthily, if if you're, you know, if you abuse drugs and drink, you know, this is going to put you at um, and, and an unfair, it's going to put you at risk, um, you know, to, to potentially succumb to this virus. But that's true of anyone who abuses drugs and anyone who, who drinks heavily. So it's, it's really, um, caused a very interesting debate, uh, just in the circles that, that I've run in socially and with my family. And to see it play out on the national stage, um, is, has also been, been something to see. It's striking to me that the criticism against him has honed in so much on what he said in 15 seconds versus what he said in the whole five minutes. And I don't, I don't know, Maya, if you or your friends saw the whole segment, um, but he did talk about chronic disease and housing, and he's an asthma patient. It, it was more than just the perception that he was hectoring 
minority communities to change their behavior. Um, but there's some irony in my mind that Adams, uh, while an imperfect messenger, clearly, uh, and someone who has gotten in trouble in a bunch of different ways the past few months, he's also a person who is rare on that stage for pushing the racial disparity question at all. Um, and and when he goes missing, that means there's less talk about it writ large. Well, Adams was, you know, one of the few people of color that you did see on the White House podium, the only African-American person up there for these um, daily White House briefings. And, you know, he's largely gone missing. And this is, you know, while we've seen the stark racial disparity in the pandemic that you mentioned, um, and we've talked a lot about how there is a lack of data on this racial disparity and sort of how it can even fuel some of those racial disparities. Maya, I know that you've dug a lot into um, these numbers and, you know, the CDC has come under scrutiny recently over this lack of data. What do we know at this point about how the coronavirus is hitting communities of color? And have we seen any change, you know, in the releasing of this data from the CDC, from the federal government? So the calls among doctors, legal advocates and community leaders have been for increased racial and ethnic data along the lines of testing who's being tested and who's tested positive or negative, who's been hospitalized and who has died from COVID-19. Um, what we see is a very limited response from the states. We're up to about 26 U.S. states that have released any racial or ethnic data related to um, hospitalizations and deaths. And then on Friday, um, April 17th, last Friday, the CDC released what they called preliminary data relating to uh, the race and ethnicity of cases of COVID-19. But at the same time, at the as they released it, and it was extremely preliminary, so preliminary, in fact, that 75% of those numbers are listed as unknown. So while we have a snapshot, a national snapshot now of the cases along racial and ethnic lines, it's, it's very incomplete. Uh, Kristen Clark who has been on the front lines of these of these calls uh, to release more racial and ethnic data through the lawyers committee uh, called the CDC's response woefully anemic. Um, and that's what we reported on earlier this week, which is the fact that these calls will not stop um, because they're just they're still very incomplete. And what we are seeing with this limited snapshot, however, is still very troubling because African-Americans and Latinos are wildly overrepresented in the numbers of those who have been hospitalized or have died from COVID-19. Well, I mean, Dan, with Jerome Adams's shifting role in the White House and the fact that, you know, as you said, he's been someone who you know, has been pushing for more work on these racial disparities and discussing some of it on the White House podium. Like more broadly, what do you think his his shifting role, the fact that he was a go to guy and then, you know, is pushed to the sidelines and then is back up there. What do you think all of this means? I think Adam's shifting role is representative of two very different things. First, the political battles that have shaped this White House, the sensitivity to public coverage. After I reached out on Monday morning asking about the Surgeon General's disappearance from TV, I learned shortly after that he was going back on the air on networks like Telemundo and Sinclair, TV syndicates as, as they're known. So his sidelining, even by Monday afternoon, appeared to be over. But I think the deeper issue is who in this administration has the ability to speak on racial disparities, to move this data forward? The Surgeon General, his job historically has been 
to be a spokesperson. That's essentially in his job description. He's supposed to be out there explaining public health problems to the American people. The Surgeon General does not necessarily fall into the job of someone who's combing through the data, having analysts go deep into the weeds. The Surgeon General and his team can do that. It's not the biggest team. But for the most part, that falls to other officials. In this case, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, has done some of the data work in the past, in previous outbreaks, to produce real-time or near-real-time findings on who's being affected, the demographic slices around these epidemics. I reported about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago, the frustration that CMS had not done more. And CMS Administrator Verma, when pressed about this at a White House briefing, did promise that data would be coming. That data is still not here yet. And that remains a big focus of my reporting. When that data will appear, what it will show, and and also, why is it taking so long? I mean, at one of the previous briefings, we saw Dr. Anthony Fauci talking about when he was working on HIV AIDS. And as some of you know, I've the greater proportion of my professional career has been defined by HIV AIDS. And if you go back then, uh, during that period of time when there was extraordinary stigma, particularly against the gay community. It came to light how much this was affecting, you know, gay communities and some of the activism you saw from those communities like led to more light being shed on the problem. I see a similarity here because health disparities have always existed for the African-American community. But here again, with the crisis, how it's shining a bright light on how unacceptable that is. I mean, Maya, do you think with this becoming more of a part of the conversation, the fact that people are talking about these racial disparities when it comes to coronavirus, do you think that that could lead to greater change at, at the national level when it comes to responses and data and the way we look at public health crises? Well, you know, the advocates who have been calling for equity in public health along race, race and ethnicity have been doing so for years now, long before the coronavirus reached U.S. soil. They've been calling for increased equity in treatment in testing for other viruses and diseases. This is a conversation that's been had for for decades now. So the coronavirus has given uh, new light to a number of these voices who were very ready to talk about these longstanding issues. But, you know, whether or not this gives them any sense of optimism, I don't think we'll see that until we first get a full picture of who is being tested and treated and being hospitalized and what's happening when they're actually getting to the hospital. Because up against this data is the real world stories that we're reading about people of color who have gone to the hospital with symptoms of COVID-19 and being told that they have um, a cold or bronchitis or um, are being treated only for pneumonia and end up, you know, becoming way worse off or even dying. And so there's a lot, there are a lot of conversations I think being had around COVID-19 that go far beyond the virus itself. This is um, a, a public health issue, of course, but a health equity issue as well. And Jeremy, you mentioned Tony Fauci and what he and his colleagues learned about the HIV AIDS outbreak. I am sitting in my house about five feet from a book called The Band Played On, 
which is the definitive history of the HIV outbreak in, in the 1980s and, and into the 90s. Tony Fauci is a main character in that book. And what listeners today might not remember, he was hated. He was despised by HIV activists who thought that he was holding up work into a cure, that, that he didn't understand the problems in the field. That turned around. He became a champion within years for their cause and, and beloved in that community. So when I think about the current fight and the anger against Jerome Adams, it, it's a reminder that sometimes the anger of the moment turns into the acceptance of, of tomorrow. And whether it's Jerome Adams or other officials who can show that they are serving the needs of these populations, that can go a long way to changing how those populations think about the government. That's a very good point. And I think that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. And <laughs> while we were speaking earlier about Adams being someone who has, has said things that have angered people, but the sentiment remains the same, which is that it's very clear that people of color are disproportionately affected by this virus. And the reason why is not, again, it's not cultural, it's not even biological, it's societal. And so I think that when we look back on this moment, Jerome Adams may very well be uh, viewed as a key player specifically for communities of color by advocating for these changes, whether their lifestyle changes, which, you know, we can certainly debate and argue about how, how to go about asking for those things or just, you know, figuring out ways to make sure that this message reaches the communities that are being ravaged by the moment that we find ourselves in. That's it for our show this week. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to Maya King and to Dispatch host Jeremy Siegel for joining me for this conversation. Our producers are Annie Reese and Jeremy Siegel. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. You can find Politico Pulse Check by going to your favorite podcast app and searching for Politico Pulse Check. You can leave us a rating or review there. That helps new listeners find the show. And we check regularly to see your feedback on our episodes. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus by checking out one of our two daily newsletters, either Politico Nightly, which comes out every evening and summarizes our latest reporting, or Politico Pulse, which I co-author and which tees up every day, every morning. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. And we'll be back with you again next week.